The biggest threat to mankind may not be terrorism, but an emerging infection. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Osterholm, co-author of Deadliest Enemy. Dr. Osterholm, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So how long have you been working in public health? Actually, I've been actively involved since 1975. So really, it's over 40 years here of kind of in the front lines of infectious disease prevention and control. It sure seems like you've had almost a zealot quality that you've kind of brushed up against so many different things that you write about in your book. And you were there at the CDC when they first were writing about the five patients in Los Angeles? Right. Actually, I was at that time a graduate student at the University of Minnesota as well as an employee at the Minnesota Department of Health. But I happened to be at CDC for a meeting on toxic shock syndrome, which I was very involved with. And because I knew some of the researchers at CDC who were involved with these early cases of KSOI, Kaposi sarcoma opportunistic infections, long before we had the term AIDS, I got invited to come to this very small meeting being held in the director's conference room. So without really knowing at the time, none of us knew that this was such a historic moment. We actually really had one of the very first meetings on what would eventually become the HIV epidemic. So over your career, so this was kind of a brand new infection that no one had seen. Do you think now we're ready? And I think, do you talk about it being maybe being a black swan? Is that, are we ready for things that we're not expecting? Well, you know, it's interesting because the general perception is, is that as we develop more modern technologies for everything, whether it be medicine, communications, transportation, whatever, we just get better prepared for everything. And I think as we have seen in so many areas that, in fact, we are lacking today, we are not better prepared. With the area of infectious diseases, we have kind of a perfect storm of factors that have come together to make us much less prepared now than we were even 25 or 30 years ago. That includes the fact that diseases have gotten more complex in how they're spread around the world just with the now major movement of people, animals, and goods around the world. The world population size, the fact that 7.6 billion people on the face of the earth, one of the very people who's ever lived is here now, and the growing numbers of people are not equally distributed. The global issue of, of the megacities of the developing world cannot be ignored in terms of how that has really fostered the beginning of and transmission of infectious diseases. Even our animal populations today, just to feed this part of the world, we've never seen poultry populations like this ever. 100 million chickens a month are born in the peri-urban region just of Shanghai, just to keep them in food for a given month there. And so the combination of factors, along with the fact that we have this increased number of failed states, governments that are no longer really in control of their own governance in a given country, makes it really very difficult to deal with infectious diseases. So today we really have challenges that 30 years ago we could hardly have imagined. You know, 30 years ago, we didn't know the terms Ebola. We didn't know the term Zika. Is this the literal tip of the iceberg? Well, and surely we're seeing new pathogens come forward, new disease-causing agents. Some of them are coming out of the intrusion into the tropical rainforest. Some of them are just coming out of animal populations that likely had occurred before. Uh, MERS and SARS are good examples of that, which is something new that evolved out of the animal populations. And some of it is just a function, really, of the changes that we as humans might say inflicted on the earth. I mentioned the issue with the birds in Shanghai. You know, today, as we identify in the book, 
pandemic influenza has to be considered the king of infectious diseases. It dates back to antiquity. We've had numerous pandemics where a new flu virus emerges out of the bird population. It infects humans and not only infects them, but it changes sufficiently so that it now can be transmitted by humans. That's when this new pandemic starts. And when you look at the combination of wild birds, domesticated birds, and humans coming together, we're seeing unprecedented movement of flu viruses. I mean, just in the last two years, what we've seen in Asia, the Americas, Africa is unprecedented. And you can say, well, you didn't always know about flu virus. That's true. But we've always had fairly good poultry flock health records dating back many, many years ago. And we've never seen anything like this is what's happening with, with birds right now. I mean, if you're a bird, there already is an influenza pandemic going on, a worldwide epidemic of flu. And, of course, that is the perfect spillover event into humans. And so, you know, why is that different today? We're not sure, except we know that the increased populations and the relative contact between humans and animals is surely playing a role in making this a much more dangerous situation for infectious diseases. So we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the, the pandemic that killed maybe 50 million people worldwide. How much better prepared are we? Well, you know, we're not a lot better prepared, and that's what people don't understand. You know, we have a flu vaccine, and I surely don't want to diminish what it can do, but we also have to understand what it can't do. And this is a vaccine that is largely 1940s technology. We now know that it's not nearly as effective as we once thought it was, that in some cases it may in a given year for seasonal flu not be any more effective than no vaccine. And for some age populations, it stays that way, and it may be 30 or 40, 50 percent effective for young, healthy adults, et cetera. Well, we also have a problem with the actual manufacturing of the vaccine. Much of it's kind of like planting corn back in Minnesota, where, in fact, just because you want to grow it three times faster doesn't mean you can plant three times as many acres, and that's going to change. It still takes the time from planting through a normal growing season. And when you develop a vaccine, whether it's in chicken, eggs, or even in cell culture, it takes a series of steps to get us a finished vaccine, which can be months. Well, if an influenza pandemic emerges, the first and second waves may come and go well before you have any vaccine. We don't have a way to pre-deploy vaccine into people like we typically think of for most outbreaks. You know, this is after the fact, not during the fact or before the fact. And so we really do have major challenges. On top of it, we've really become a one-world market. And what I mean by that is the just-in-time delivery system of the world has actually made us more vulnerable to a number of things. Several years ago, our group did a study where we actually surveyed a world-renowned group of PharmDs, doctors in pharmacy, who represented all areas of medicine and clinical care. And we said to them, what are the single most important drugs you have to have to keep people alive today? Not meaning cancer drugs or so many of the kinds of drugs you think of that are for severely ill people. But what's on the crash card in the emergency room? You know, what is it really? Heparin, insulin. If you don't have it, they die. Yeah. And we came up with 30 different generic drug categories, all generic. Not one of them was brand name. All 30 were made outside the United States. None of them have stockpiles anywhere. And they're all just-in-time delivery, most of them being made in India and China. So if we have a flu pandemic today that interrupts the actual manufacturing process in India and China, either they can't get the basic raw ingredients, they can't get it made, they can't ship it, the fast ships leaving Beijing to Long Beach aren't running, we really are at risk in this country of having a major collateral damage event occur where people die because of things they just can't get. 
No, we didn't thought about that before. That didn't happen in 1918. If you're going to die, you're going to die from flu, et cetera. But the collateral damage issues weren't there. So we have to understand today the vulnerability we have and why it's so important that we have things like new flu vaccines that are effective that we can deploy before the pandemic that might cross-protect against a number of strains of influenza and protect for some number of years, not just that one seasonal flu shot year. And I think one of the other things mistakenly, I think everyone would say, well, we have all kinds of antibiotics. So if people got that post-influenza pneumonia, now our antibiotics are going to work perfectly. And I was really struck in the book, just you writing about antimicrobials. And can you talk a little bit about where we've evolved, you know, over the last 70 years? One of the things that we try to accomplish in the book is really lay out in as clear terms as possible, what is it that just really scares us? What really concerns us? What hurts us and what kills us? And they're often very different categories. And the two areas of infectious diseases that really have the greatest potential to impact our lives on a global basis really are pandemic influenza and antimicrobial resistance. Antimicrobial resistance is clearly a much slower process than we see with flu. Flu could come today and the next year it could kill hundreds of millions of people. Antibiotic resistance is more like a kind of a slow-moving tsunami wave where gradually over the next years, we're going to continue to see more and more resistance occur. And this shouldn't be a surprise. One of the most fascinating studies in this area actually was a group of researchers that went into one of the most distant regions of Carlsbad Cavern several years ago and had never had human penetration that deep into the cave system before. And they sampled the walls of the cave before they you know, did anything else. And they then looked at those organisms characterized them, and they actually looked to see about their antibiotic resistance status. And lo and behold, a number of these organisms were resistant against many of the antibiotics that we use today, some that would never have otherwise been present in those cave locations, and why were they then resistant? Well, if anyone makes the logical step back and to say, how would resistance occur and why, microorganisms since the very beginning of time have been fighting for space and food. And in doing that, they've created their own chemicals that then basically inhibit the growth of their bacteria for their own survival. Think about penicillin. Where did it come from? The mold penicillium. So in fact, through evolution, we've had antimicrobial resistance. What's happened now, however, is that with the human and animal use of antibiotics, particularly in the last 20 to 30 years, we have really pressured these organisms into a hyper-evolutionary stage where, again, every 20 minutes when they create a new generation, there are mutations that occur which are defective and mean that the organism dies. But there are some of those mutations that favor them by, in fact, inducing things like antimicrobial resistance. And so we've created a 30-, 40-year window here of this hyperevolution, and we're now seeing the results of that in terms of a very rapidly growing number of organisms that are resistant to the first, second, and now even third-line drugs that we have. On top of that, we don't have a major pipeline of new antibiotics. The easy ones are gone. We've already hit them, kind of like easy oil. But on top of it also, we've not created the market for the pharmaceutical industry to really invest that much in antimicrobial today. Think about it. You tell them you want you to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a new product, but once it's licensed, we don't want it used except in very, very limited situations where it really is needed for treatment. And when you do use it, use it very sparingly. That'd be like telling somebody a car and saying, but you can only drive it between 8 and 10 on Sundays. You know, who's going to buy that? And so the industries have actually pulled back, and we need to invigorate that whole area through a series, I think, of public-supported efforts 
because it's not about the fact that we're just trying to support the pharmaceutical industry. It's these are strategic weapons we need. And finally, we just need new vaccines that, in fact, could prevent some of these drug-resistant infections from ever occurring. Why do we have to treat drug-resistant pneumonia-causing agents if we could prevent them? And so the combination of those three are really necessary. And again, in our book, we lay that out to say why that's important. The Wellcome Trust funded a very major effort several years ago, completing it last year, looking at antimicrobial resistance. And it was by far the most exhaustive of all studies ever done in this. And they concluded that by 2050, antimicrobial resistance deaths will exceed that of the combined cancer diabetes deaths in the world. That's a pretty sobering fact. If you're just tuning in, welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. I'm joined today by Dr. Michael Osterholm, co-author of Deadliest Enemy. One of the things I was really shocked about was just how much, so if I'm, I'm a primary care doctor, if I'm really judicious in not giving antibiotics to my patients when they don't need it, but just reading what you wrote about is how much antibiotics is in our food that we eat, someone could have a, a drug-resistant bacteria without getting an antibiotic in the last few years. Is that true? Right. This is one of the areas that we really have to look at very carefully, not only in the United States, but around the world. And that is the use of antibiotics for food production animals. You know, China literally exports antibiotics by the metric tons, many of them, to around the world for use in raising our cows and pigs and chickens and so forth. And much of that is not needed. On top of it, when it is used, it's often used well beyond, you know, what the clinical indications would be. And so we're driving resistance in a big way in the animal world. And unfortunately, that is often kind of degenerated into a debate about, you know, human medicine trying to dictate to veterinary medicine what to do. And it's really not about that. We're all in the same boat. I mean, if the animals aren't going to be effectively treated because they too have resistant strains, they're in no better shape than we are. So we have to take a real look at this. And it also points out the global nature of this. If we could have a perfect response in the United States, physicians doing the business of antibiotic prescribing exactly as anybody would want them to do, and veterinarians and the feed industry for animals doing the same thing, we'd still be at very, very high risk of antibiotic-resistant infections because the rest of the world would be generating them. And they're just going to basically leak into here like a screen door in a submarine. So in that regard, you know, we have to look at this as a global issue with a global response and the coordination and cooperation of countries like China, India, and so forth are going to be critical. And that's what we really detail in Deadliest Enemy is just that. What are the things that we really need to do to make the real difference and not just, you know, scare people out of their wits, but in a sense, scare them into their wits about what can and should be done. And I think one of the things you wrote about in the book is us being a citizen of the world. If Ebola had never left Africa, would there have been the worry in the West? Would people have cared so much in the West? And I think that that's one of the things that we do need to care about MERS and SARS and all these other things, even if they haven't spread around the world, because they will. Yeah, they will. And I think another important point that really was illustrated during the Ebola situation, I was asked to do a number of briefings on the Hill during the Ebola uh, epidemic in Africa. And almost all of them were from intelligence committees or military-related committees. And the concern was, what would happen if this virus continued to march eastward out of those three Western countries? Made its way into Nigeria and locations where Boko Haram were in control, or into ISIL-controlled uh, camp areas of certain parts of Central and Eastern Africa. 
And it was interesting because there was incredible concern by these groups of what the infection could do in terms of destabilizing countries even further throughout Africa and creating major problems there. So from a national security standpoint, it seemed like we got it, that in fact, this was much larger than just a public health crisis, which it was. But it was also more than that. And I think right now, when I look at what's happening in Washington and I look at the proposed budget from the administration, we're missing the very fact that a very key part of national security is all about infectious diseases. So to cut the NIH budgets, to cut the CDC budgets, to cut the USAID budget, to cut the World Bank budget right now is penny-wise and pound-foolish because if there was ever a national security issue that we need, it's this. You know, vaccine research and development public health professionals on the front lines of deadly outbreaks are just as important to us as, as missile research and development and boots on the ground. And we have to understand that, and we don't. And I think if 10 million people are going to die in a short period of time in the world in the upcoming years, it's probably not going to be from a war, correct? Exactly. And in fact, Bill Gates has been very articulate on this matter over the recent weeks. He's written several articles in which he's talked about the potential impact of both influenza pandemics and bioterrorism events. And again, we can't prepare for everything, but some of the more catastrophic things we have to prepare for. One of the things in our book that we actually talk about is my co-author, Mark Olshaker, who's an Emmy award-winning filmmaker as well as author, actually interviewed Dr. Bob Sheets, who was the head of the Hurricane Center in Miami some years ago. And he said to Dr. Sheets, he said, you know, what is the one thing that really worries you or keeps you up at night, concerns you? He said, what really worries me is an F4 and F5 going right on to New Orleans. And this was before Katrina. And yet, even though we knew this, even though it was clear and compelling, the potential risk there, look what happened when Katrina made landfall with only a Category 3, and no one had really prepared. And we do this over and over again where we know enough to know but we don't do anything about it. And then we all ask all kinds of questions afterwards. Or, you know, during the crisis itself, we throw everything, including the kitchen sink at it, at a great cost that if we had just invested that money earlier, could have been a cost savings, and God knows what it could have done in terms of saving human lives. The book is The Deadliest Enemy, and I'm talking with Dr. Michael Osterholm. And it was really a terrific book. I think anyone who is a practicing clinician should read this, and I think just anyone who is an American and really needs to think about our health and anyone who's a citizen of the world who's thinking about world health. And thank you for that. And, you know, one of the things that I just want to add a context to this for, you know, people will ask me why I wrote this book after 40 years in the trenches and being involved with this is, you know, I'm a baby boomer and I have kids and grandkids. And I look at the fact that today the world that we are leaving them is in such horrible shape. No generation dating back literally many, 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 many centuries ago have left their children and grandchildren a world in worse shape than we're doing. And I think that to myself, you know, so many of these are such complicated problems, and it's not that infectious diseases are not, but there are so much we could do in our generation to improve on whether or not our kids have antibiotics one day. Are they going to live in the post-antibiotic era? Are they going to be vulnerable to an influenza pandemic? Are they going to be at risk of these global diseases that one day can be traveling around the world, are they going to be at the risk of mosquito-borne diseases that didn't pose a risk even 30 years ago? And there's so much we could do. And I think if there's anything I would urge is that at least all the other baby boomers who might listen to this, think about what legacy are we leaving our kids when we know that the problem is real and we can do something about it. 
that to me seems to be the most important message maybe as somebody who's a baby boomer right now suggesting to my colleagues and friends. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This is ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. For more in this series, please visit ReachMD.com slash book club.